0: We tend to worry about the future, don't we? And have have any of you worried about your future lately? Yes, may I get an amen? So so what are what are some of the things that you worry about? Hell, yeah. 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 All of the above. I, I have number three coming, so but I'm not worried. Now, if you do worry, um, does that help? So let's take a look at Israel in this example. And Israel enjoyed success under Samuel's leadership, but they began to worry about the future. They were tempted to exercise what I would deem as amateur providence. And what I mean by amateur providence is that when we as humans who are unarguably amateurs in providence, when we decide to tell God that we can plan our lives better than he can, better than God can. So let's see what caused their anxiety and tempted them to want to control their own destiny. So we're going to start verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his son judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So, what is Israel worried about? They're worried about Samuel's sons. They saw bad times to come, and if Samuel's sons assumed leadership, because they knew Samuel's sons didn't fit Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 18 through 20. And here's what it reads You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Corrupt leadership always hurts always sets back the believing community and we see for Israel the foundation of their society was founded on the concept of God's will and that God is a just God they were saved by Yahweh and founded on Yahweh's character and action and and the foundation of his character is that God is just He is a God that models servant leadership. That's a character trait of God. The purpose of leadership is to serve, not to be served. And we'll see that Samuel's sons have betrayed the purpose of leadership by their injustice. And we see that their actions have caused this mistrust of the old ways. Because Israel remembers the disastrous thing that, that happened with Eli's corrupt sons. That their leadership was terrible. It was corrupt. And they didn't want to repeat that disaster with Samuel's sons. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. The elders of Israel wanted a king because Samuel was old and his sons were not like him. And you notice that Samuel was upset over their request, but not because of their reason. Samuel recognized that they had a right to be concerned. He didn't contest the critique of his sons, he didn't try to protect their sons. So so you see it's important in leadership to separate our ego. And in this case, it's the critique of Samuel's son and the real issue at hand, which is wanting a king. And we have to be able to separate those things and not personalize everything. And so some background on Israel and its kings. There was a long history of Israel not having kings. The judge Gideon refused kingship in Judges chapter 8 verse 23. And it says, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. He refused because God was to be their king. Not him. And you take a look at uh, the disaster of Abimelech's reign. He had just short-lived kingship in the very next chapter in Judges chapter 9. And that was just a brutal and destructive reign by Abimelech. And it's interesting to note that Abimelech's mother was a Canaanite woman. uh, A Canaanite concubine actually, actually. So maybe his mother filled him with these ideas that weren't in Israel's best interest. But this is not about Abimelech. So back to 1 Samuel. It wasn't native to Israel to want a king, even though all the pagan nations all around them practiced that type of government. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. How did God respond to the request? You take a look at verses 7 and 9. Do you notice the word heed or listen in in some of your Bibles in those verses? See, God's basic answer is that Samuel is to let them have their way. Samuel is to listen to the voice of the people. Now let's take a closer look at verses 7 and 8 as as God has two uh, reservations or observations about Israel's request in verses 7 and 8. The first one That the problem with monarchy is not a political one, it's a theological one. Israel was rejecting God from being king over them. And something interesting about these verses is that God doesn't want Samuel to take this personally. But to see that the rejection was aimed at God and not Samuel. And God pointed out to Samuel that their behavior is just a typical thing, and it's not aimed specifically at you, Samuel. So God here is protecting Samuel and wanted Samuel to understand that the people's rejection was of God and not of him. So God is caring for Samuel. God is caring for his well-being. The second observation is the new rejection wasn't something new. It was not new or foreign to the character of Israel. Just take a look at Judges or Israel's attitude during the book of Exodus. It's clear that this type of behavior is typical of Israel. The issues are not having a king. The issue is that the king is a substitute for the Lord. It's just a new twist in idolatry, which has been an ongoing struggle throughout Israel's history. And it's just a bad pattern that they have. Keep repeating it. And it's not that having a king is wrong. You look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 and 16, where the Lord says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful... And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And verse 16, I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. And what about Genesis chapter 35, verse 11? Where God tells Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And how about Genesis chapter 49, verse 10? Where it reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And this is talking about a ruler from the tribe of Judah and the obedience of the people, it's talking about a king. So a king was in the works from the beginning, back in Genesis. And you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, when God told Moses that there would be a day when Israel would want a king and that it would be permissible to have one. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from whom your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall, you, shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book." from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. God was saying it's permissible to have a king. But there are things that have to be in place for the king of Israel. The Israelites wanted a king like all the other nations. But what's laid out for them in these verses in Deuteronomy is a king that is not like the other nations. You look at these verses again. Verse 15 the Lord chooses. He has to be a brother, he has to be a fellow Israelite, it can't be a foreigner. Verse 16 the king has to have restraint. He can't go out and be this military maniac. Verse 17, he must have restraint and not take on a, a ton of wives, nor can he build up a ton of wealth for himself. And then you check out these verses in 18 and 19. He has to copy the law and read it. Those were the king's qualifications, the king of Israel. So you can see, clearly see that Israel's king was not to be like the other kings around them. He had different qualifications. But that's what exactly what they're asking for, is a king like the other nations. And instead of looking for a king that the Lord has already instructed them to have in their mind and have the qualifications for right in front of them, they want one like everyone else does. Having a king was permissible, as we see in Genesis and Deuteronomy. But in this particular case, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it was wrong. Now, the request for a king was not wrong. That was permissible, right? According to Deuteronomy 17. But the motive, the motive at the time of 1 Samuel chapter 8 was what was wrong. You look at verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. See, God saw right through it. We can't fool God. You know, I have two daughters. And uh, let's say one of them comes up to me at 12 years old and tells me that they want to get married to a boy. We're going to have to see about that. Right? What are you talking about? Now, it's not that Katie and I are opposed to marriage. Obviously, you know, we're married. We both believe that there's a strong likelihood that both of our daughters will get married someday. Not until they're 40, but, but they're 12 years old. They're 12. It's not that it's wrong, but the timing's way off. Right? And that's kind of what's happening with Israel in chapter 8. It's not that what they wanted was wrong, per se, but it's just the wrong moment. You look at verse 5 again, because I want to point something out that's kind of interesting. It says, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So you remember Eli, who was a priest, he had these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were just these terrible corrupt religious leaders. And then we have Samuel, the prophet and the judge, who had two sons, and he was a great leader, but he had these incapable sons, Joel and Abijah, and they were also corrupted uh, religious leaders. And so after these two failed religious models, now they ask for a kingship. But that doesn't guarantee a solution to bad leadership, does it? There are no guarantees just because you change the government structure doesn't mean that it guarantees you success. You start out with Eli, and who may have started out just fine, but then came along his sons that just jacked everything up. And then you have Samuel, who's awesome, but then he has these sons that come along and they jack everything up. And so now a king is requested. But isn't that the same in that there's an heir to the throne? So how is that any different? Priests have an error, judges have an error, king has an error. It's just an error, right? It's just, it's wrong. So it, it, they can jack it up just like any other leadership model. And by the time there's a transition from the leader to the heir, it can be messed up. So there's no guarantee of this continuity of good leadership with the king, just like there isn't one with a priest or a judge. But the elders in verse 5, they think that a king would be the solution when it actually presents the same problem. They think that this new model of leadership is the answer, but it has the same problems. And it's also the elders that made a similar move in chapter 4, verse 3. Israel comes back from battle with the Philistines. They lost, and, they, and then they say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They go the superstition route rather than the faith route. Let's go get the ark, because if we have God's piece of furniture, He's going to be with it. They were wrong, right? Chapters 4 through 6 tell us how wrong they were. And now they're doing something similar, but instead of something militaristic, it's political. They want a king. Give us a king. It's so hard for us to see the root of the matter, isn't it? We often deal with symptoms. We often want to handle things on the symptom level and not at the root level. And, the, and at the root level, it goes back to verses 7 and 8 in that God's kingship is being rejected. See, They, they see symptoms and they're, they're treating symptoms. They, oh, those are corrupt sons, so let's just change the political structure. They see the need for a new government structure, a new system of running things. But in God's eyes, it's the same idolatry. It just looks different. It's hard for us to see causes. It's hard for us to see the root. We tend to deal with symptoms rather than the causes we tend to look for solutions but we don't look to repentance you take marriage problems for instance is the problem really not being with each other enough or is it just a symptom of something deeper we have these problems because we never get to spend time together he's so far away and we just you know we never is that all there is to it though Right Or, or is, there a, is that a symptom of something deeper in there? And, and we have this desire for substitutes. We have a desire to have a king rather than the king. We, we want to look for a king. Anybody. And you know this is really a really bad symptom when, when you notice that the elders here didn't seek the Lord at all regarding to this matter. The most spiritually mature leadership didn't pray about this. You don't see them bring this before the Lord, do you? They just threw out a suggestion without seeking the Lord. The real issue is a king. A king being a substitute for the king. And this is not simply just an issue about kingship. This is an issue about God's people. And when people read this cha- chapter, typically uh, typically they think that this chapter is about kingship. This is about uh, how how the Bible defines kingship and that that government structure. But, But it's not about that entirely. This is really about exposing us. Us as fallen, sinful people. And of course it tells us of Israel's desire for a king, but in the process, it's revealing who we really are. Fallen, sinful people who are far from God and thank God that He's never given up on us and we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to see that in chapter 4, the substitute for trusting God was the ark. And then we go to chapter 8, and the substitute is a king. You'd figure they would have learned by now. Why is it so hard to put our trust in God? Well, maybe it's something that was never intended to be easy. And maybe it's because it's easier to trust in anything that we can actually control rather than something we can't control like God. I'm not sure. Just some ideas. Not only do we have this desire for substitutes, but we are also resistant to wisdom. You look at verse 9. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. In verse 9, Samuel is told by God to really warn them, really tell them and clearly let them know the consequences of their choice when they pursue a king. Let them know. God wants them to know what they're getting into. It's not that God is bitter or that He's resentful here. He he cares for them. He wants to inform them of their consequences. See, God does have demands of us, but they're for our best interest. And He calls us to have faith even when we can't see the future. And He calls us to trust Him and His ways of doing things. God does demand, but He doesn't usually force His way into doing things. He warns us, but He he usually doesn't force us beyond that warning. Let's read on through to verse 18. The consequences of having a king to show that we are resistant to wisdom, starting in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants." And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So you notice that Samuel doesn't broadcast some incredibly intimidating propaganda to just scare them out of wanting a king. right? He, he doesn't go on some rant to tell them how the king is a ruthless person or a cold-blooded tyrant. Samuel simply lays out how monarchies historically work. This is how they were. This is this is what you're going to get. He's not trying to scare them out of not getting king. He's just laying out the facts. It was just an, a common account of what all kings do. That's what verses 10 through 18 are. They're, they're, they aren't a list of abuses by a king. They're just the common practices of a king. And we're informed that a king will take their sons and daughters and use them for his own needs. That their sons are going to be drafted into the military. That their daughters are going to be used for government work. That the king is going to amass wealth by taking their lands and imposing taxes on the lands that they do control. That the king will use their wealth to give gifts to those who work for them. That's what poor leadership does. It always gives away what is not theirs to give. Now, is this done today? Do leaders today give their friends Um, something to, to hedge their political position or to hedge their power or to hedge their influence? Are the resources they give the resources that actually belong to others? You can answer those questions yourself without me going on some tirade, which I'm very tempted to do, but we're talking about Samuel. So let's go back to Samuel. Do you see what was taken from the people? Their servants and their herds were taken from them. Verses 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, you'll notice the phrase, will take. In, in Hebrew, it actually only occurs four times in verses 11, 13, 14, and 16. Anyway, you get the idea about taking, that this leadership model takes. And this type of centralized government is characterized by taking. Now, how different is that from our Lord and King Jesus? Jesus. Who in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we're told, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Our king is so different, isn't he? He does not take. He gives. And Samuel isn't exaggerating any facts here. Right? He's telling them straight up where a kingship will lead. The book of Samuel is about leadership. And, and we have seen examples of leadership in Eli in chapter 2, of Samuel in chapter 7. And now we're seeing another type of leadership for Israel, the kingship that is defined and it's condemned. Not that it's not permissible. It's permissible. It's just the wrong time here. And First Samuel chapter 8 clearly shows us leadership that seeks to serve itself instead of serving others is a wrong type of leadership. Leaders that demand perks and think that it's natural to benefit from the people are wrong. And you take a look at the financial state of our economy today. And you hear of these business executives that make these huge salaries or getting huge bonuses or all these stock options while countless people out there are losing their jobs or or don't have jobs at all. And we'll continue to see how we're resistant to wisdom in verses 19 and 20. But before we get there, I want to talk about verse 18. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. You know what's scary about this verse? It came true. When Israel served the Lord and was attacked in chapter 7, They did just fine. They they won. They had a victory militarily. So so you see that their real security laid in their vulnerability, their vulnerability to trust in God. But now they want to control their own destiny. And they want a process like all the other nations have. And by wanting that, they, they forfeit this special ability to call upon the Lord. And this happens today, doesn't it? personally as well as corporately as a church, people in churches are more willing to change their methods rather than seeking God. And have you ever noticed how Christians in churches are willing to put in a ton of work for a new gimmick or a new type of thing rather than looking for a new heart of repentance? And when we seek the security in the ways of the world, we, we forfeit our ability to pray to God and to be heard by God. You listen to what God said to his believers in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at first, and this is God speaking, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by My name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you in your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of My sight as I have cast out all your brethren. The whole posterity of Ephraim. And then you go into chapter 15, verse 1 of Jeremiah. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before Me, My mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of My sight. And let them go forth. Scary. May we not be like the believers back in Jeremiah's time. Back to us being resistant to wisdom in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19. Let's go back to that text. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No. But we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. These people have their mind made up. They already have their agenda in place. There's no talking them out of what they want to see or what they want to happen. They don't care about anything else. They want what they want. They are bent on having their way, and no one is going to change their mind about it. And sometimes we get this way, don't we? We get something in our head and, and nothing is going to change our mind. Nothing except getting what we want. And, and this is what we see here. And I get this all the time as a pastor during these counseling sessions that I have with, let's just say, guys. And, and guys who, who have no co- uh, clue about dating women or courting women. And so you guys all know who you are. You know, we've, we've met. So uh, we talk, right? And, and, and I've tried to talk you out of what you did. I did. You know it. And what you tried to do didn't work, did it? But there's no telling them any different. They're they're set. They're not going to change their mind. They're bent on what they're going to do. Some people just don't listen and they just want to do it. They got to do it. And that's Israel. They're bent on doing what they want. They're resistant to wisdom. So what does God do with us when we have such resistance to Him? God relinquishes And you see that in verses 7, 9, and 22. Let's continue on. We'll get to verse 22 here. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearings of the the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. God relinquishes. He gives them what they want. Now isn't that surprising to you that God does this? Sometimes, God allows us to embrace our idols. That is a very scary thought. Sometimes, God allows us to follow through on the things that we insist on. Sometimes, God hands us over to the things that we insist on having. Now, isn't that frightening? That's scary. And this is our resistance to wisdom. Before I wrap up, I I want to bring something else up. And it's uh, this dislike we have for holiness. You look at verses 5, 19, and 20. Verse 5, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Verse 20, That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now we saw that they're determined to have a king. There's no changing their mind. They wanted to to, to keep up with all the other nations around them. You know, it it was the Iron Age. This is the, the Iron Age. And they didn't want to be left behind. They didn't want to be stuck in the Bronze Age. And they insisted on being like the others. And remember that it was permissible to have a king, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17. But there were four qualifications that an Israeli king had to have. But they wanted to be like the other nations. And it's clear in Deuteronomy 17 that it's calling for the future Israelite king not to be like the other kings. Not to be like the other nations. But what was driving Israel in the direction that they were heading? They wanted to be like other nations. That's what they wanted. They wanted someone who could lead them militarily. Which is kind of foolish because how quickly they forgot that the last battle that they won was with a godly leader that prayed and God heard him. Not some guy that was leading them in the front with a chariot or whatever. Then they thought that they're warned that God won't hear them if they choose a king. I don't care, we want a king. But God won't hear you. We want a king. Isn't it interesting that they thought that somehow by by a proper organization, a proper church structure, let's say, like all the other nations, like all the other corporate companies, Fortune 500 companies, that they could do without the answer of God? And in their twisted view, a properly organized corporation or, or government structure preempts the need for God's help? So they wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted to keep up with the more developed nations. And those who were more developed, they had kings. So we need to have a king too. Now what's the problem with that? God called them to something higher. And they were denying that calling. God called Israel to be His people. And in that calling, He called them to be different. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy, which means different, set apart, distinct people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And they were denying this. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Yahweh is a different God. And we are to be different kinds of people that reflect God's character. But Israel, like so many of us, we don't want to be different. We want to fit in. We want to blend in like everybody else. I remember when I was growing up, the costumes my parents got me during Halloween, and it, it just reminded this me of this yesterday because we had the trunk or treat thing, and man, my kids have it so much better than I did you know when my parents dressed me so so i'm in I'm in second grade i I'm in Miss Field's second grade class, and I remember standing in line for our costume parade, our Halloween parade along the brick wall just outside her door, and so I loved Star Wars I still do actually and my parents got me this cool C-3PO mask, right? And it was, it was a gold-colored mask. I was so excited to wear it and, and go trick-or-treating, and that was until I was told that I could only get the mask. And so my dad um, said he'd make something for me for the rest of my costume. And little did I know what that meant, because what that meant was he cut three holes out of a large black garbage bag. And he stuck me in it, my head and my arms, out of this big black garbage bag. I'm C3PO, man. Like, dude, he's gold. He's not black plastic. Right? He, he didn't sport this 50 gallon hefty bag, right? What's up with that? I was wearing a garbage bag. If that happened today, people would call CPS. You can't do that. Man, good thing I had a healthy self-image. That's that was cool because I think for most seven-year-olds that would have been embarrassing. That's a humiliating thing. But I'm a ninja, so wearing black's natural, right? So yeah, that was cool. Black, black bag. So, but I also think the kids didn't make fun of me because the year before I was a first, I was a first grader, and we were playing on this place and the sixth grader came and he started pushing us. I cleaned his clock. So, yeah. I just let Bruce Lee out. But, but anyway, so did you know that my dad was, was, was kind enough, so kind to make me a new garbage bag every year? <laughs> I wore that same mask for three years. It wasn't a gold C-3PO by that time. It was white. It was like I was a Wocky. And um, so for three straight years, I was at the Halloween parade, but I always had a new garbage bag. <laughs> And back then, they didn't have those cinch kind. That would have been cool. I had the read, but it was just a garbage bag. And he, he would have made me a new garbage bag for the fifth grade. But then I just decided, hey, Dad, I'm not going to wear a costume anymore. I'm cool. I'm cool. And God bless my dad. I love that guy because he always found ways to make me stick out. Because in fifth grade, oh, no costume. That's cool. We got something else for you. And so our school had some really cool book covers. And they had some awesome Star Wars book covers that were shiny, and they had a Yoda and Ben Kenobi and Chewbacca and the X Wing Fighter and all this stuff. Everyone bought their book covers from school or bought something cool from the store or something. And my dad got something from the store too, but it wasn't bought. He took the paper bags that our groceries went in and they were carried, and he used that for my book covers. I'm in fifth grade, man. Image is everything. Kids have cool book covers. I got this thing, and, and I'm advertising like Stater Brothers and, and Ralph's and Alpha Beta. And like, he didn't even have the decency to put the inside of the bag. It was like marketing the outside. I, I shop at Ralph's or whatever. These were all grocery stores in Southern California. Everyone else had these cool, shiny book covers, and I'm here a, a marketing campaign for Stater Brothers or something. Why did my dad make me different? I can go on a lot of more ways of how my dad made me different. But I think you get the point. We don't usually like to be different. And so it was with Israel, who was tired of wearing a garbage bag for Halloween and being different. They wanted to be like everyone else. And it's the same for those of us who are disciples of Jesus. We are to be different. We are to be set apart. We are to be distinct. Matthew chapter 5, verses 46-47 through 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Do you understand what Jesus is asking here? He's asking... How are you any different than anyone else who exercises common courtesy? How are you any different? How are we distinctive when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus? How do we show that we are set apart and not just like everyone else? Or do we regard the ways of the world so much so that we are no different? What God was telling Israel was, Don't give a rip about those other nations. You be you. You are set apart. You are holy. You are distinct. And we tend to dislike holiness. We tend to not want to be different than others, distinct from others, set apart from others. But if we're not, how can we be as Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter 2 verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why should our outlook be different as Christians? Why should we as Christians have a different definition of success? Why should we champion justice and serve those who need help? Why should we have an attractive decency about us in our actions, in our words? Why should we be faithful in our marriages, And why should we remain sexually pure before we enter those marriages? Why should we truly worship rather than be entertained by music or by a sermon? Why should our life in God be more than just personal fulfillment? We are to be different because God is different. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them. Set apart, distinct, different. But we often place our trust and our faith in other things that the rest of the world places their trust and faith on, don't we? So many people today believe that education is going to solve everything. Don't get me wrong. Education's important. If it's not, we wouldn't have sought out to tutor at the, least, the lowest scoring elementary school in all of Oakland Unified School District. That's where we tutor. So education is important. It can clarify, but it can't transform. It can be valuable, but it won't save you from your sin. So what did Samuel do in such a disappointing, distressing situation? He took his hurt to the Lord. And this is what we always need to do. Instead of getting mad or doing something rash or, or even worse, quitting. And I have to confess, I have been tempted to quit so many times while in ministry. So many times. And the Lord was, was just there with me. And I had these people like Samuel there that were examples to me that I got mad. I've done rash things. But I haven't quit. So don't quit. And the Lord was going to use Samuel in the future. And Israel needed him. It would have been a disastrous thing for Israel if Samuel quit. And Samuel would be abandoning his his role to serve the Lord if he had not been there to love the people. And you remember, Samuel is the one who will anoint David. So for any of us who find ourselves in situations like this, I can just encourage you as I empathize with you really don't quit. You pray. Don't quit. And the Lord's response to Samuel is to heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. And this is so hard for us as leaders to do. But it's such an ego death that we as ministers, as leaders in the church or leaders in our families, we have to do this. It's the Lord's will to listen to the people sometimes. And this chapter ends pretty strangely and Samuel just tells them to go home. And we'll see in future weeks that Samuel will indeed obey his Lord, but we'll, we'll clearly see that Samuel is not the people's puppet. Samuel's not going to get played by these people. He'll stick to the, He'll stick there, but he's not going to get played by them. He serves the Lord. He doesn't serve this group of people. He serves the Lord, and he has boldly confronted them with the danger of their choices, and he doesn't immediately jump to find another king or whatever. And you notice that Samuel doesn't make all the decisions based on good theology. He doesn't make his decisions based on good logical reasoning from his own views or gleaning from his own experiences, which are very good. He doesn't gain it from those things. He doesn't gain it from theology. He doesn't gain it from his own reasoning. Where does he get it from? From God. Samuel is listening to the dynamic voice of God. And as disastrous as their choice is going to be, God is still faithful. and It's going to produce King David, where Jesus Christ comes from that lineage. And this chapter is not just about a desire to have a king. It's about us. It's about we who are fallen sinners before a holy God, and we can't fool God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 tells us, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. May we be shown how shallow we can really be. May we be able to see how idolatrous we really are. May we be able to see that this is not so that God has a bunch of miserable creatures on earth, but it's so that we can walk in truth, that we can walk in joy, that we can walk in freedom. Let's pray. Lord, may we never reach that point where you just relinquish. We desire, Lord, to always be in your will and not bullheaded to have what we want and we, we, God, desire to hear the dynamic voice of you and not just base our relationship with you on uh, a text, base our relationship with you on logic, but that you are a dynamic God and that you actually hear our prayers and, and that you actually answer back. And May we have that type of relationship with you, God. And not to say that theology is not important, not to say that logic is not important. Those things are important. But Lord, may we not forget that you are a dynamic God and that you actually speak. So I pray, Lord, that we would be humble enough that we would repent, not just look at symptoms of things that we have that we feel are wrong, but what are the roots of those things? Lord, I pray that you would give us insight and clarity as to how to address those things. In Jesus' name, amen.